0: This is The Causes of Things, and I'm your host, Michael O'Fallon. It was 2,400 years ago that the Greek historian Thucydides, said the following in his historical record of the Peloponnesian War. It was the rise of Athens and the fear that this inspired in Sparta that made war inevitable. This phrase that originated from Thucydides is used both wrongly and rightly to explain the likelihood of conflict between a rising power and a currently dominant one. It's called Thucydides' Trap. It is applied today to describe the global situation between the establishment dominant nation of the United States and the rise of Communist China. And never before has a nation risen so far, so fast, on so many different dimensions as has China. The challenge is the impact and how China has risen the discombobulation this will cause the United States and the international order, of which the United States has been the principal architect and guardian. And as a matter of fact, without the United States and their assistance, China would not have the rise that it currently has, which is something we need to get into a little bit more in a future episode. But the past 100 years has been what historians now call the American century, And if you are in the United States, you've heard the term American exceptionalism. Well, American exceptionalism was a dirty and terrible phrase in some of the circles that I have been in over the past 12 years. What I heard from a number of my Chinese friends and clients over the past 12 years was the phrase Chinese exceptionalism or Asian exceptionalism, which, as I learned later, would have potentially disastrous implications on the entire world. And when I say this, I mean for the Chinese people and Asian people as well. And we want all Asians to prosper, all Chinese to prosper. We do. We want all men and women to have the equal opportunity to prosper and turn their toil into dreams with unlimited potentiality. But what is the disastrous part? The truly frightening part is the totalitarian mercantilist nations that are wanting literal world domination. And the ideas that govern their rise bring death, draconian control, and the loss of individual autonomy wherever these ideas govern the masses. But let's step back in time and put into context this concept of Thucydides' trap. Roughly 2,400 years ago, Thucydides expressed a view that resonates in strategic thinking to this day. And once again, Thucydides argued that the real cause of the Peloponnesian War and the rapid increase in the power of Athens and the fear that this aroused in Sparta, which had dominated Greece thus far, is what led to this conflict. Thucydides focused his writings and analysis on the structural tensions caused by a sharp change in the balance of power between the rivals of Athens and Sparta. He pointed to two main factors that contribute to this change—the aspiring power's growing need for validation and its demand, rather implicit or explicit, for a greater voice and strategic place in multilateral relations, and the current power's fear and determination to defend the status quo. In the 5th century BC, Athens emerged as a powerful force that in mere decades had become a merchant maritime power— possessing financial resources and wealth, but also reaching primacy in the Greek world in the fields of philosophy, history, literature, art, architecture, and even beyond that. So in many ways, this would identify what most would consider a hegemony. In Thucydides' historical record, human emotion made conflict inevitable. And at several points where peace was possible, Emotion, unfortunately, propelled it forward. In the beginning, there is a set of speeches in Sparta, debating the possibility of going to war with Athens. Archidamus, the Spartan king tells the Spartan people not to underestimate the power of Athens and urged that Sparta must not be hurried into deciding in a day's brief space a question which concerns many lives and fortunes in many cities and in which honor is deeply involved. But we must decide calmly. Now, even though Archidamus, the Spartan king, said this, the Spartan ephor advocated, quote, "'Vote therefore, Spartans, for war.'" as the honor of Sparta demands, end quote. The Spartans followed the Ephor, which led to a war of honor and fear against the Athenians. Thucydides argued that Athens' behavior was understandable. With its rising power, its confidence also increased, as did its awareness of past injustices and determination to right the wrongs that were committed against it in the past by Sparta. But equally natural, according to Thucydides, was the behavior of Sparta, which interpreted Athens' behavior as ungrateful and a threat to the system that Sparta had created and under which Athens was able to emerge as a great power. Does any of this sound a little bit familiar? This combination of factors resulted in structural tensions and subsequently a war that completely devastated all of Greece. In addition to the objective shift in the balance of power, Thucydides drew attention to Spartan and Athens leaders' perception of the situation, which then led to an attempt to increase their own power through alliances with other countries in the hope of gaining a strategic advantage over their rivals. The lesson that Thucydides taught us however, is that alliances are a double-edged sword. When a local conflict between Corfu and Corinth broke out, Sparta felt that to maintain the balance it needed to help its vassal, Corinth. The Peloponnesian War began when Athens came to Corfu's defense, and Corfu leaders convinced the Athenians that a de facto war with Sparta was already underway. Corinth also convinced the Spartans that if they did not attack Attica, they would be attacked by Athens themselves. Corinth then accused the Spartans of misunderstanding the gravity of the threat of maintaining a favorable balance of power in Greece. And although Sparta ultimately won the Peloponnesian War, both Athens and Sparta came out of the 30-year conflict in ruins. So with what Thucydides had brought us in terms of his understanding of the Peloponnesian War into today's world, what many are trying to do is trying to take the conflict that happened then between Sparta and Athens and apply it directly to what's happening between the United States and China. But I think that this is improper. But in the United States over the past 50 years, the story of the rise of the conflict between Sparta and Athens has been wrongly applied by several of the power brokers in the international globalist movement. First and foremost would be former U.S. Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger. And on the other side of the Pacific, Xi Jinping, the communist Chinese leader who has put his nationalistic ambitions above honesty and goodwill negotiations, stated, quote, We all need to work together to avoid the Thucydides trap, destructive tensions between an emerging power and established powers. Our aim is to foster a new model of majority country relations. Keep that in mind in the next few podcasts because that relates back to the Belt Road Initiative as well as their continuing discussions with the World Economic Forum. Another voice in the conversation surrounding Thucydides' trap would be the President Emeritus of the Asia Society, member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and Hang Lung CEO, Ronnie Chan. And full disclosure is necessary here. I have known Ronnie Chan and his brother Gerald very well over the past 12 years and served them in different capacities. But I believe that the story of Thucydides' trap is misapplied and forced in this situation to try to describe the rise of China and as well the relationship with the United States. And in all the studies that pertain to Thucydides' trap, especially when it's being used as a reflexive theory, The main idea is that the new power, and in this case China, the challenger, is going to compete to the death to displace the old, the current dominant nation or rule, which in this case would be the United States. But again, there seems to be a forced narrative that is trying to reflexively take Thucydides' trap over the past 50 years and make sure that everyone is talking about this as if it is something that is inevitable that must happen. Happen, And the specific discussion has been recently reanimated because of military and political developments at the international and domestic arenas. And the narrative in regards to the debt-diplomacy-driven, neo-colonizing nation of China is that somehow we must achieve detente by gradualistic decline of the United States. It's as if this is a foregone conclusion by the international community, along with China. So to avoid war, to avoid any kind of conflict that could result in World War III, the powers of the world must cooperate to create that gradualistic decline of the United States. They must have some of those within the United States as well precipitate that decline of the United States so that China may rightfully rise along with other partners, which I believe we're up to, I think, around 136 partners in the Belt Road Initiative right now, to rise with these other partners together for a great reset, a great move forward, a great leap, if you will, into the Fourth Industrial Revolution. But there's a few things that are getting in the way, and one of those things that's getting in the way is that old-fashioned American insistence on rugged individualism, privacy, self-reliance, democracy, and entrepreneurial spirit. Mix in, of course, national pride, constitutional law, and autonomous rights, and you have a problem in achieving your Great Global Reset. You see, because giving up personal privacy and guaranteed rights is not something that the vast majority of Americans are really willing to do, so... If the entire rest of the globe participates in the creation of what will be called a circular economy, that is Davos speak, by the way, for a Keynesian socialist economy, then either the United States will be embargoed by the world and forced into a difficult, almost no-win situation. America will have the leverage of the weight of China and the rest of the nations participating in the supranational scheme applied against its neck. And we got here, over the past 50 years, by proclaiming the need for global participation to avoid the catastrophic consequences of Thucydides' trap. And of course, this is all nonsense. It didn't have to happen like this. We didn't need to have the rest of the globe partnering with a nation that is literally committing genocide against its Muslim population in Western China to come to this. We didn't need to have the rest of the globe trying to avoid the horror of a possible third world war by partnering with a monstrous totalitarian state that tramples over treaties and crushes the rights of Hong Kong and Taiwan. We didn't need the fertile fallacy of Thucydides' trap. This is all alchemy. Thucydides' trap is another example of what I call Pygmalionism. And if you recall, in the ancient Greek fable of Ovid's Metamorphoses, Pygmalion was a Cypriot sculptor who carved a woman out of ivory. According to Ovid, after seeing other women prostituting themselves, Pygmalion declared that he was, quote, not interested in women, end quote. But then found his statue was so beautiful and so realistic that he fell in love with it. In time, Aphrodite's festival day came, and Pygmalion made offerings at the altar of Aphrodite. There, too scared to admit his desire, he quietly wished for a bride who would be the living likeness of my ivory girl. When he returned home, he kissed his ivory statue and found that the lips felt warm. He kissed the statue again and found that the ivory had lost its hardness. Aphrodite had granted Pygmalion's wish. Pygmalion married the ivory sculpture, which changed to a woman under Aphrodite's blessing. So in Pygmalionism, also what we can refer to as reflexivity, you avoid the objective issues in order to achieve the end you wish to create with subjective insistence. That some potential catastrophic end must be avoided. In other words, whatever you wish to make true, you make true by continuing to talk about it, by continuing to think about it. And what was a non reality, you make into a reality. That's Pygmalionism. That's also the answer to Thucydides' trap not unlike the global climate scare tactics of Extinction Rebellion. Thucydides' trap will create a global World War III if we don't find a way to create managed decline in the United States now. So Graham Allison writes a book about Thucydides' trap. Thucydides' trap is constantly discussed in our military circles within the United States. Thucydides' trap is talked about as almost an inevitable conclusion— of what will happen with the relationship of the United States and China within the halls of Congress. And the Asia Society and Ronnie Chan then, of course, have to have conferences with Graham Allison discussing Thucydides' trap ad nauseum, nonstop. Because now you have invested in trying to stop Thucydides' trap, which is a non-event. It's only a possibility. And in conversations in the circles that I have been running in over the past 12 years in Washington, D.C., London, China, New York, Los Angeles, I have had to endure hours and hours of lectures and discussions on Thucydides' trap, the Pygmalion reflexive wheel in full effect. So if the entirety of the political, governmental, military, and corporate world believes that everything must be done to avoid the Thucydides' trap, it will lead nations to do the unthinkable, to join hands with the Communist Chinese Party, to place all their bets on the rise of China and the slow deconstruction of the United States to avoid a war that would never happen. To deconstruct and weaken the United States for the purposes of avoiding a global war with China. Handing the keys of the United States over to a supranational entity and joining in peace and prosperity in the fourth industrial revolution with China. So how do ideas like Thucydides' trap become instant doctrine, instant dogma within our military circles, our political circles, our geopolitical think tanks? How do these things become almost permanent fixtures that everyone must direct policy on, direct their conversations on, direct their future plans on, direct their investments upon. How does this happen? Well, it's through a process called idea laundering. And what is idea laundering? And how idea laundering has been essential forwarding the reflexive response to the theory of Thucydides trap. Well, idea laundering is essential in creating a fertile fallacy that we've talked about many times before, that is shared and shared over and over again. That is fallacious information referred to as science or knowledge, but instead of science that is being derived through the scientific method. It's being derived by what someone wants to do operationally in the future, to be able to create, hence the Pygmalion effect. It is a part of the process moving away from political science and into the idea-laundered realm of political alchemy. So once again, I'd better define alchemy again for everyone who hasn't heard our past programs. So alchemy is not the science that you and I have understood that seeks objective, provable truth. So where the scientific method seeks to understand things as they are and are provable, alchemy seeks to bring about a desired state of affairs, or it just wants to make something happen and needs to create research, even false research, to achieve its end objectives or goals. So to put it another way, the primary objective of science is truth. Alchemy's goal is operational success. So this brings us to a method known as idea laundering. And also the false idea of Thucydides' trap. And the Thucydides' trap champions, which are politically engaged global politicians and elites, have been developing concepts like these for more than 30 years. And all that time, they've been percolating. Only recently, within the last six to seven years, have they begun to emerge in mainstream policymaking. But these politicians have ideal laundered Thucydides' trap by passing off their ideas as knowledge. That is, as if these terms describe facts about the world of political reality around them. And while some concepts within these ideas may contain bits of truth... They aren't scientific. By and large, they're the musings of ideologues that wish to accomplish their specific goals of reordering the political landscape. And in this case, it's creating a feedback loop centered around preventing the supposedly inevitable catastrophe brought about by Thucydides' trap. Now, I think it's possible to say that ideal laundering is analogous to to money laundering. And here's how it works. First, various politicians or elite global players have strong objectives that they would like to accomplish. For example, they would like to accomplish creating a worldwide socialistic circular economy. And they need to inspire folks at the decision-making level to support the concept of encouraging the gradual decline of, let's say, the United States, both from the top, legislatively, and the bottom from the general populace to fuel their goals of displacing the United States as the dominant world power to spread the power around. So they create a fertile fallacy about the need to stop an almost certain global war with China that targets the United States as the primary villain. You create the idea by wrongly taking one phrase From Thucydides, entire history of the Peloponnesian War, base all of your game theory of what will happen in the inevitable future and insist that from now on and that everything must change because of Thucydides' trap. And in this particular case, that the U.S. must be weakened to prevent this horrific tragedy. It's a story that exists within a social power dynamic that unjustly ascribes authority to weakly supported theoretical knowledge. That's what ideal laundering does. Students or politicians leave the academy believing that they know things that they do not know. They bring this knowledge of Thucydides' trap to other institutions where, over time, Laundered ideas and the terminology that accompanies them become normative. They become doctrine or dogma, giving them even more unearned legitimacy. And this all started from one spark, one false spark. So the Thucydides trap idea laundered concept has been laundered through the peer-reviewed literature by activist scholars, think tanks, and politicians then widely taught for years before being brought into the full understanding of the world at TED Talks and books. And if you doubt their false hypothesis, even just a little bit of it to maybe say that there should be some testing or maybe some doubting, I mean, this hypothesis seems pretty far-fetched. You are dismissed from the inner circle of knowledge and influence. We tend to think, you know, of propaganda as something generated by the state, but it's from everywhere because the state is becoming the private and the private is becoming the state. So this idea laundering is a prime example of something coming from ideologues within think tanks that have objectives and making its way into the public via sympathizers in the mass media. Eventually, these lies or theories become de facto truths, either because people really do believe in them, because everybody else believes in them, and if they believe them and I don't, then I'm on the outs, then the cost of questioning them becomes too great. So people conform. So I'm really hoping you get this. There are no facts. It's all narrative. One historian's account is as good as another. Facts become whatever is useful to the ideological or political crusade. This bad idea, along with these highly biased and unreliable claims about Thucydides' trap and U.S. and China relations, has now been laundered so thoroughly that some of the most powerful organizations in the world use it as authority and reach to further legitimize it, and spread the lies to the masses, and especially to political bodies, deliberative councils. And so the idea laundry begins with paper after paper, book after book, conference after conference, using the same fallacious idea of the inevitable Thucydides trap as the certainty that must be avoided. So if the entirety of the political, governmental, military, and corporate world believes that, everything must be done to avoid Thucydides' trap. As said before, it will lead nations to do the unthinkable. It will lead even corporations to do the unthinkable. To join hands with the Communist Chinese Party. To place all their bets on the rise of China and the disintegration of the United States to try to avoid a mythical war that quite possibly would never have happened. And the primary Thucydides trap evangelists who are pushing the inevitability of this proposed catastrophic event are trumpeting the Thucydides trap hypothesis with the same ferocity and the same frequency as an apocalypse focused doomsayer prophet. That stands on street corners, waving the warning signs that the end is near. And who is the primary Antichrist in their political scenarios now? Well, of course, it's President Donald Trump. And as the pro-China Thucydides trap cultist can be heard repeating over and over again in TED Talks and in Asia Society meetings, he didn't cause the downfall, but he certainly pushed it into the abyss. And thus, even within the United States, the recruitment of folks at the State Department level, in the military, in large international corporations, in internationally followed sports teams such as the NBA, who are convinced that the future is China because of the Thucydides trap cult, have all bet on China. And China has had their proxy provocateur for the last several decades who would saber-rattle as soon as the United States would show some momentum of gaining strength in Asia and some influence in Asia, and that has been North Korea. And North Korea would threaten South Korea and Japan whenever it was time for China to flex its diplomatic muscle. So what did Donald Trump do that was different than the past administrations? Well, he befriended North Korea's ruler imperfect and brutal as he is. And for a season, this took some amount of leverage away from China. See, because North Korea was their sock puppet, disrupting some of the key components necessary to the mythology around Thucydides' trap. Now, others have bet on the international go-betweens. You know, the referees of the international political world with the folks, let's say, at the World Economic Forum, believing that the Great Reset would put the West in synchronization with China as we, the voting public, were deceptively pushed against our full knowledge or will into the fourth industrial revolution. We've been talking about this, of course, for years. And this solution, in their eyes, in the international community, the globalist community, would prevent this reflexively inevitable, quote, monster under your bed, end quote, Thucydides' trap. From actualizing on the world stage. But there is something else at play. And just as there is more to eschatology than what Hal Lindsey had claimed, there is more, in context and in total, than what wild-eyed prophetic doomsayers like Graham Allison are saying about Thucydides. Context is king, you see. And the main thrust of Thucydides' history of Peloponnesian is this. Order is fragile. The main question in politics today is how to deal with this fragility. Some people are escapists, engaged in a futile effort to try to make fragility, let's say, go away. And some people are realists. They accept fragility as an unavoidable aspect of political and social life. They see an open society as the only way to manage fragility well. Some political scientists will say that I'm misusing the concept of realism. In their view, realism is strictly about foreign affairs and realists are people who see global politics as a brawl among power-hungry countries, much like the Hobbesian battleground that uh, Jordan Peterson uses when describing how Deridian concepts are fracturing our society. But to get a more well-rounded understanding of Thucydides is to understand that the epic described by Thucydides, the main peril confronting Greek city-states, was posed by other states. But people had other worries too. In some places, people lived in constant fear of revolution and lawlessness. In other places, they feared drought, famine, and disease. Some felt an undefined fear of the unknown future. That's chaos. These were Thucydides' realists, people who understood that the world was a turbulent and dangerous place. Concern about fragility was shared by later writers in realist tradition. Machiavelli feared that Florence would be attacked by other city-states, but also fretted about the unrest within his own walls. The English statesman Francis Bacon offered a list of conditions, including inequality, religious disputes and immigration that could produce tempests within the state. A good leader, Bacon said, looked for signs of coming storms. But these storms are not definite. They are not carved in stone. And they don't have one solution, especially when that solution is to assist a totalitarian draconian state against one that does value freedom and liberty. And so the prevention of coming possible storms does not mean that all of civilization should reject liberty, freedom, and capitalism for a stakeholder circular Marxist economy that is primarily run by a bunch of totalitarian plutocrats and the communist Chinese party. Why is it that the equalizing incredible force of equal opportunity and capitalism is always made the boogeyman in all of these situations? Really, you need to ask yourself why and why nearly everyone in every affinity group has joined in on this. Because what is necessary is operational success. For those that are the totalitarians, for those that want to control your future, that those that want to rob you of your cognitive liberty. We must resist this. Free people now that do have their freedom, that do have their liberty, must resist this and have a wider conversation. And so we stand at a crossroads. We have supranational entities that now have taken the concept of autocratic authority, stakeholder capitalism, and the forced-fit entrance of the Fourth Industrial Revolution, due to the Wuhan virus, COVID-19, and now, America's decline and the West's decline has started. And where did this all begin? Where was the fuse lit that sparked America's precipitous decline? Well, in China. And who was taking advantage of this great decline? the World Economic Forum, and China. I'm Michael O'Fallon, and this is something to consider as we continue to examine the causes of things.